Okay, Isaiah 7. I said last week I was going to preach on Isaiah 7 last week, but it ended up being quite difficult, especially with everything else going on. I still find it to be quite difficult, but it's a wonderful passage. And I I wanted to preach on Emmanuel for this season. And uh, this is the obvious passage, uh, the promise of Emmanuel. Um, from Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. Um, so let's pray and then we'll uh, look at Isaiah chapter 7. Our God, will you be with us this Lord's day? Uh, will you overcome the sinful distractions of our hearts, which consistently fail to uh, delight us in the pure joy of your presence? We're prone to wander, to look everywhere for our satisfaction and protection and comfort and joy, but to the one overflowing fountain of these blessings. So guide us by your Holy Spirit into all truth this morning. May we find in these scriptures, Emmanuel, God with us. And may we lay hold of him as the fulfillment and expression of your covenant mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word, if we're able. Isaiah 7, 10 through 17, in the promise of Emmanuel. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. curious what you would say if you were asked, what is the greatest threat to Christianity? Or what are some of the greatest threats to Christianity? Uh, Pervasive and growing secularism? Maybe an influx of kind of New Age, Eastern mysticism into the evangelical church? Uh, Persecution? Not here, obviously. (laughs) but in China, in the Middle East, or Islam. Some say Islam could be the second largest religion in the U.S. by 2040. Or COVID, Uh, not the disease so much, but I've heard so many petty squabbles over this thing. Perhaps that would be a great threat. Or the media, or social media, the entertainment industry, addiction, the devil... 
attacks on Christian morality and, and, and virtues in society at large. What would you say? All these threats against Christianity could lead us to conclude that we are kind of surrounded on all sides. Despite all these threats, I would say that there's one that stands out above the rest. And that is you and me. The human heart. So my thesis is, with all the danger on the outside, the greater threat is on the inside. And this is what we see in King Ahaz in this story. Um, so our first point, again, with these um, Advent sermons, the, the, the uh, format is need, promise, and fulfillment. So the need is God with us. We need God with us. And we need to be rescued from ourselves. Uh, king Ahaz was king of Judah. Remember at this time, Judah and Israel or often referred in this passage to as Ephraim, um, the northern and southern kingdom. So Ahaz is king of Judah. Uh, he was grandson to the good king, Uzziah. Um, and thus, as king of Judah, he was heir to all the promises of the people of Israel and the promises to David about the kingship on the throne of David. And we have to keep this in mind as we read the Old Testament. The question about the people in the Old Testament is always, are they believing the promises of God? Are they invested in the covenant? Um, they're not just stories. They're not just kids' stories, flannel graphs, right? Uh, they are not just prologue to the relevant part in the New Testament. Uh, one example of this that's, that helps me is the story of Esau when he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. That's not just an odd story. What was so bad about Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of soup? I mean, it seems like Jacob was kind of the turkey in that scenario. But it says that Esau despised his birthright. In other words, Esau despised the covenant of God. He didn't believe the covenant. He was meant to be the rightful heir of the covenant, and he threw it away for a bowl of lentils. Likewise, King Ahaz here, he's heir to the throne of David, and thus to the Davidic covenant. God would establish this kingdom and that he would, he, he would seat a son of David on the throne of David. And as the king of Judah, Ahaz, was the representative of the people of God, he was meant to lead them in accord with the covenant, with the promises of God. That was his job. Now, king Ahaz endured a season of really extraordinary stress. Uh, the kings to the north of him, Rezin of Syria and Pekah of Israel, made an alliance to attack Judah. And they did that. And Rezin took many captives back to Syria. Or Syria and Pekah, it says, killed 120,000 from Judah, all valiant men. We're also told that Ahaz's son, uh, Messiah, was killed during this time. And that 200,000 of the women and children were taken captive as slaves. 
Not only that, but the enemies of Judah to the south and to the west took advantage of the vulnerability of Judah, Edom, the Philistines, and they began to attack Judah and take captives and take cities. So really, he was literally surrounded on all sides. So comparing my own problems, my own stresses to those of Ahaz, uh, I have baby problems. But I don't feel terrible for Ahaz. He had it coming. Uh, here's a bit of Ahaz's rap sheet. He, he made metal images to the bales. He offered his own sons to the bales. Uh, I don't need to tell you in detail what that involved, but probably at least two of his sons. He made offerings on the high places. And after Syria defeated him, he went to Damascus and he saw the altar there. And he said, Syria's gods helped them. So let's rebuild this altar back home and we'll worship those gods. Uh, He cut the vessels in the temple in pieces to give his tribute to the king of Assyria. Shut the doors of the temple and he made high places all over Judah, sacrificing to other gods. So this is a bad dude. He had it coming. He's under great distress. And what does Ahaz do in his great distress? He must, of course, recognize that the hand of the Lord is against him. And now he's going to turn from his wickedness. He's going to repent, right? He's going to cry out to Yahweh for help. No, instead he turns to Tiglath-Pileser III. We'll call him TP3. The king of Assyria. He turns to Assyria for help. He even, like I said, gave TP3 portions from the house of God, cut in pieces the vessels from the temple and gave them to the king of Assyria. Now, the king of Assyria did march against Damascus. He killed Rezin, and it was only a temporary relief. He did relieve Judah of their distress from Israel and from Syria, but it was only temporary, and it allowed Tiglath-Pileser to then put his thumb on Ahaz. So this is the context in which we have our passage, and actually, I'll have you turn back to Isaiah seven one through nine, and we'll just read a little bit more of the context before we get into our passage. So this is the call of God to send Isaiah to Ahaz. <clears throat> Isaiah 7, 1 through 9. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook in the streets, uh, excuse me, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, uh, Shear Jashub is a foreshadowing name. It means a remnant shall return. 
That's Ahaz, or Isaiah's son. A remnant shall return. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tebel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is thus far God's attempt to convince Ahaz to believe him that, that Ephraim and Syria will not prevail. And this is a great display of God's faithfulness. Again, Ahaz had burned his own sons to Baal. He was one of the most wicked men who ever ruled Judah, perhaps the most wicked. But he was God's servant on David's throne. He was the king of God's people. He was the proper heir to the covenant promises. So God's offer here in verse 11 is just extravagant considering who Ahaz is. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ask anything you want. No holds barred. Let me prove it to you that Yahweh is for Judah. That Yahweh is for God's people. That Yahweh is for the king on David's throne. So now, of course, Ahaz turns corner, right? Now he believes. Now he accepts the sign and comes to repentance and believes Yahweh. No Ahaz is hard-headed. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. I mean, this is just reeks of Satan, twisting the word of God, right? We're not supposed to put the Lord to the test. But when God offers you a sign, you accept the sign. By rejecting the sign here, Ahaz displays his utter lack and interest for the promises of God. And Isaiah is exasperated in verse 13. It says, And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? God is growing weary of Ahaz. We could call Ahaz a fool and a wicked fool indeed, and yet we're in a dangerous place if we don't see some of Ahaz in ourselves. When we're under pressure, when we're under attack, where do we turn? Do we, like Ahaz, turn more quickly to the king of Assyria than to Yahweh? Uh, the church is in trouble, so let's run toward pragmatism and attractionalism. Our Christian virtue and morality are threatened in our society, so let's run to the princes and rulers. The politicians will save us. 
where we're distressed, you know, work, family, conflict, personal failure, on and on we could go, and we feel surrounded on all sides, and what do we do? We run toward Assyria. We run to those things that will give us temporary relief, but will ultimately afflict us. We turn toward indulgence, indulgence in entertainment, in food, in sex, in drink, uh, self-pity, ambition. We're quick to be like Ahaz when we're pressured. We crumble, we scramble for help anywhere but for the, the true source of help, which is God. And really, that's the point in the grand scheme of things, of these external pressures, these external threats, is to make us crumble inwardly. To turn inwardly to unbelief, to not believe the promise of God. So the real threats are not the external threats. The real great threat is the wavering human heart. So that we turn to self-reliance instead of relying wholly on the God of promise. So what is the promise? So the promise here is God with us, Emmanuel. God is faithful, though we are faithless. Now, if I were God, that's a horrifying clause. If I were God, I would, I would say, just forget it. These people, they're not worth it. I'm through. I'm through with Ahaz. I'm through trying to keep Judah on the straight and narrow. I'm through with Zach Cruz and his antics. I don't have to put up with this. But God is not like me. God is faithful when we are faithless. God's promises are more sure than the green grass in spring. He may be exasperated with Ahaz, and in fact, he is done with Ahaz. But he's not done with David. He's not done with his people. He's not done with his promise. So they may be faithless, but he will remain faithful. They they may be and are headed for discipline, for chastisement, but God will not forget his promise. Remember the name of Isaiah's son, Sheir Deshub. A remnant shall return. It's an ominous name because it suggests, where are they returning from? A remnant, they're returning from exile. And yet, the promise remains true, a remnant shall return. So in uh, verses 14 through 17, we hear Isaiah speaking on behalf of God as a prophet. And he says, okay, you don't want to sign... God's going to give you a sign anyways. He says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Jerusalem, from Judah, the king of Assyria. Uh, when we sing about Emmanuel, it's not the context I think of it. Uh, and this is kind of almost an ominous, ominous promise to Ahaz. 
Now, you know I love exegesis. Uh, I love the process of figuring out difficult passages. It's like solving a puzzle or a riddle. Uh, and this passage is notoriously difficult. And in my arrogance, I thought I could figure it out. Or at least come to a conclusion that I was content with. And uh, alas, I've had to wave the white flag for now. Uh, if we find ourselves in Isaiah 7 for the next 40 years of Advent, you, you know why. But here, here are some of the challenges. Uh, first, there's been a great deal of debate over this word virgin in the text. And honestly, to me, this point is not that hard. Um, however, it's worth bringing up the Hebrew word here that is used for virgin is Alma. Alma, and there's another word in Hebrew that means more strictly virgin, which is betula. Um, Alma simply means young girl of marriable age, which implies virginity, especially in that culture. But uh, some have argued, mostly liberal scholars, out of discomfort with the virgin birth, that if Isaiah meant virgin, he would have used the word betula. Uh, the reason this is not difficult for me is I'm not a liberal scholar. Even if I say I didn't intend to imply virginity, which it seems obvious he did, the New Testament plainly teaches the virgin birth, and we believe in the whole counsel of God, and it teaches it in both narrative and grammar. Uh, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses the Greek word that expressly means virgin, and Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7.14, from the Septuagint. So, if we don't doubt the unity of Scripture or the authority of the Holy Spirit in its composition, this is a very small problem. A uh, second problem here that's the more of the challenge for me is another aspect of verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The big picture is clear in this instance, the big Bible picture, which is the important thing to grasp in this passage, in any passage of Scripture. Um, but in Old Testament predictive prophecy, there is typically a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So a good example of this is Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a near fulfillment here where the author is in distress, crying out to God, and yet, this is about Jesus on the cross. Fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. So here in this passage, it's the near fulfillment, the immediate context of the promise of Emmanuel that is the stumper. Nobody seems to know how this is fulfilled in, in the near context. In other words, we know this is prophesying ultimately about Jesus. But who in the immediate context text is the mother, and who is Emmanuel, and how is this assigned to Ahaz in that context? Uh, there's a few common theories. The first is that this Emmanuel might be Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz. The problem with that theory, although he was a good king and, and brought some form of redemption to, to Judah, um, he was probably an adult when this promise was given. So it's not likely Hezekiah. Another candidate for um, Emmanuel in the immediate context was Meher Shalal Hashbaz. 
That's a mouthful. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That's fun to say. I've been walking around the house all week saying that. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. This is probably the most broadly accepted theory. Uh, and it has the benefit of proximity. He is conceived right after the promise is given in chapter 8. Um, and he's the son of Isaiah. His name, however, is not given to him as Emmanuel. On the other hand, neither was Jesus directly. Um, and this name, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, when applied to the enemies of Judah, actually carries some of this application of God with us. His name means the spoil speeds or the prey hastens. So when you think about the destruction of these two kings that are coming against Judah, if you apply his name to their situation, there's some aspect of God with us in that. Part of the problem with this theory is that Isaiah's wife is hardly uh, an Alma at this point. She's hardly a young woman of marriable age. She's already had Shair, Jashub. So you have to kind of get creative and say maybe she died and Isaiah has a new wife. or You have to do something to get creative to get around that. A third uh, view is that this is talking more about a remnant, that it's more of a metaphorical idea, speaking of the nation as kind of the mother of the remnant. Uh, and there's some things that are appealing about this to me, but few argue for it, and it's difficult really to establish from the text. Uh, a fourth theory is that there is no immediate fulfillment, that it's only about Jesus. Uh, and this is held by Calvin, by Alec Montier, which I both respect both of them. And it's really just a simply a reaffirmation of God's covenant faithfulness to the house of David. Um, when Ahaz is doing everything he can to undermine it. So I'm attracted to this view as well. But the challenge is, in my estimation, it doesn't account very well for what it says about this young child who eats curds and honey in the immediate context. So those are... Four, I think a fifth one actually is that there's some child named Emmanuel, but it's not mentioned. That's a possibility too. None of them solve it for me. That's the point um, in my mind. A third challenge is in sorting out what is meant in those verses 15 and 16 when it says, He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refute the evil and choose the good, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Um, The challenge really, and this is the interpretation of who Emmanuel is. Um, Once you solve that, you've solved this. But in short, it seems to be saying there is a child who will be born, and before he's very old, before he can choose good and, and discern between good and bad, so some would say three, some would say age 12, One author even said, uh, this is kind of talking about kingship. You have to be able to have discernment before you can become a king. So somewhere in that range, soon, in other words, uh, this period would come where Rezin and Pekah will be destroyed. Which is an astounding promise considering the wickedness of Ahab. That why should God destroy these kings at all for him? So if you're not following that, that's okay. I'm barely following it myself. 
but it's worth considering and thinking about. Um, curds and honey here in this passage is not a picture of wealth and flourishing like milk and honey is for the, the, uh, the uh, promised land. Uh, it's actually poor man's food, curds and honey. Um, it's what people eat when they can't afford to kill their cow or their sheep because they have to keep eating the milk. And we see that in chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, talking about the day of, of um, the coming of Assyria. And it says, In that day men will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. So it appears that Isaiah is saying, by the time this child reaches the age of 12 or 3, he himself will be in a season of distress. But before that happens, within the next few years, Israel and Syria will be destroyed. Which accords with history. They were, in fact, destroyed. All of this is a long way around of saying we're not entirely sure what's going on here in the immediate context. But we can say some things for certain. Um, all of the nations here involved are acting selfishly and wickedly. They are all headed for trouble with God. And God is clearly superintending all of this for his glory. The outcome will be destruction of, of all of these nations, except that Yahweh will preserve a remnant of Judah. And from this remnant will come the Messiah, the ultimate restoration and establishment of the Davidic kingdom. That much is clear, and that, that's a great deal to go on. The point really is, again, God is faithful when we are faithless. This whole section, chapter 7 through 11, attests to God's covenant faithfulness. All the way through 7 through 11, we see this building promise of Messiah. Um, in chapter 8, we see Emmanuel crushing the enemies of his land. In chapter 9, we have the familiar passage, The government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And, and then going on in verse chapter 11, again a familiar passage, He shall come forth from a shoot of the stump of Jesse. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So all these familiar passages are connected. They all refer to this one person, this Emmanuel, the ultimate Emmanuel. I like the way Calvin wrapped up this promise to Ahab. He wrapped it up very neatly. He said, Most appropriately, therefore, did Isaiah say, True, you do not believe the promises of God, but yet God will fulfill them. For he will at length send his Christ, for whose sake he determines to preserve this city. Though you are unworthy, yet God will have regard for his own honor. God will have regard for his own honor. And that's something we can take to the, to, to the bank. Whenever we are in those worst moments, those Ahaz moments, where rather than flee to God, we're going to go on bended knee to the king of Assyria, we can be certain God is going to carry on His plan with or without us. 
Though we are faithless, He remains faithful. Emmanuel sits on the throne of David, just as He promised. Whether we fancy ourselves subjects or not, He sits on that throne. So as we look at the world around us and all the problems and the threats to our faith, to the way of life that we would have as Christians, keep that in mind that the greatest threat is not external, but internal. As much as we would like to identify ourselves here with the faithful prophet Isaiah, uh, we're more inclined to be like Ahaz, to wander, to forget God's promises which makes His grace all the more wonderful. When we consider our own unfaithfulness as Christians, we are counted among the remnant, the preserved, the beloved people of God, citizens of the kingdom of Emmanuel, in Christ and in Him alone and through no merit of our own. Which leads us to the fulfillment of this promise, the obvious fulfillment in the New Testament. God with us, Jesus will save His people from their sins. You can turn over, if you like, to Matthew 1. Um, read that story from the New Testament. And unlike this Isaiah passage in the, the near fulfillment, the far fulfillment, there is no fog. This is clear as day. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth, birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. As clear as day. Mary here is clearly a virgin, both an Alma and a Betula. She is a sign for all who would believe God. The name Emmanuel uh, could simply be an optimistic expression of confidence in the Lord. God will be with us through our hard times, through the onslaught, through the onslaught from Syria, Ephraim, Edom, Philistia, Assyria, God will be with us. He'll be alongside of us. He'll be our helper. He'll get us through tough times. It does seem like that's the primary rally cry we hear about is Emmanuel this time of year. Is if you're going through hard times, Emmanuel, God will be with you. He'll carry you through. Which, how, how true that is. But if we can say more, we should say more. And the Bible has a lot more to say about Emmanuel. God seems to like to give promises that at first blush seem sort of pedestrian. But at the end of the day, they are fulfilled in the superlative. Not only is Jesus our helper and our friend in times of difficulty, He literally became God with us. He embodied God with us. He is Emmanuel, 
He has taken on the tent of flesh and tabernacled with us. He not only came to conquer the enemies of the people of God and all, all the nasty, unpleasant things in the world, he came, if you'll pardon, pardon the expression, to cast out the inner Ahaz from his remnant. Notice here Matthew's report. He says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is expressly connected with the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. So this thesis that the greatest threat is internal rather than external is proven in this verse. It's not ultimately the, the Syro-Ephraimite alliance that is the great threat to the people of God. It's not the Roman Empire that is the greatest threat to the people of God. It's not the U.S. government or Islam or secularism or illness that is the greatest threat to the people of God. The greatest threat to the people of God is our own sin, the, the anti-Emmanuel, the thing that made us and caused us to be separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, that is our own sin. God cannot abide with sin. In His holiness, He must execute justice on sin and cast sin from His presence. But God has overcome sin in Emmanuel in the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that the remnant of his people might experience God with us. I want to close with the lyrics of a song. Um, This author wrestled with the covenant promise of Emmanuel from a vantage no other human being ever has and ever will. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Praise God. When we're faithless, he remains faithful. His covenant is fulfilled in Emmanuel. Amen.